This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health addictions and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. Now, guest opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. Today's guest is Stephen Archambault, who is co-founder of Stonewall Recovery Centre, Canada's first LGBTQ recovery centre. And we're talking about addiction recovery for the LGBTQ community. So welcome, Stephen. Well, welcome, Stephen. I am very excited to do this because at Nomina, we uh, one of our, our clinical director is transgender care certified. She's a specialist, and we haven't done a lot on this topic. So I am very excited to have you on board because I know you're an advocate for the community and with your work you're doing with Stonewall Recovery. Why don't we start by you giving us a brief introduction on who you are and what you do? Well, I'm Stephen Archambault. I'm not only an advocate, but I'm also in the community on both counts for addiction and queer. Beyond that, I have been in recovery for 20 plus years. I'm coming up 22 very shortly. I've been, I started my career in the military and moved from the military into financial working for banks and made it up to the Western uh, Canadian Vice President for Sales and Service for Charter One. And eight years ago, realized I was chasing somebody else's dream and entered into the field that I wanted to, which was not-for-profit, primarily within addiction recovery. Now, I know you love you some stats. I do. (laughs) What kind of stats do you have for us about the LGBT community and addiction recovery? Because I know I had to do some research and gender neutral populations have the most or have the worst mental health, according to Stats Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, gender diverse populations absolutely do have. uh, They face trauma at a higher rate. They face um a rejection from family friends when they when they come out there's just so many aspects that um are a direct result that they face as on a younger generation that they're being bullied uh, at a greater rate so uh, and we all know that addiction has a very direct link to trauma so and so does mental health concerns so that for me is like it's almost looking at it going that it's um of course Right. Somebody's just now saying what we've always known. Um, yes, I do love stats. However, one of the things that I was learning because I was listening to all these podcasts and somebody said facting people over the head doesn't work. And they use facting as or fact as a, as a verb. And I was like, I absolutely love that. So it's like, because that's what I've been doing. But there are stats that are relevant. Like within the queer community, we face addiction or suicide on our younger generation at 14 times, not 14%, but 14 times that of the cisgendered or heterosexual counterparts, a lot for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, out of the normal, the, the, the national average on addiction is 9%. Within the queer community, it's 30%. And the last one that is absolutely devastating, there's two of them, but the queer community makes up about 3.2%, 3.3% of the population. But they make up almost 35% of the homeless population. The other side of it is, if you look at our, uh, our Indigenous brothers and sisters, they also make up about 3.2% of the population. Very similar. They equal 35% of our people affected by homelessness. 
So you have two groups that intersect in a lot of ways, two-spirited, indigiqueer, and they make up almost 70% of our homeless population. So we're missing a lot of, you know, we're missing a lot of things in our society when that is the case. So those are the stats I'm going to leave it with. And I'm not going to factoid everybody to death, but, no, but that is there. The facts. Let's do the feels because yeah. I know I have someone very close to me who identifies differently. And we're, I was, he stayed here to kind of detox and, and we were looking at treatment and it was mm-hmm. terrifying. It was terrifying because I yeah. do not want him bullied. I do not want him treated differently. And, and I, I've worked in treatment centers and I know all that bravado and all that, that guy stuff that goes on it, when you're looking at a, at a men's treatment center specifically. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff that, that I'm hoping we can really get into today is is um, creating a queer safe environment because you're the one I learned this from is there's a difference between queer friendly and queer safe right queer friendly is all the groups that are out there that um, openly support the queer the queer community you know they invite people in they have policies and procedures that will support a actively safe environment in 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 certain areas um but when something goes wrong unless it's reported or it's there there's it's almost like you talked about the the that bravado that 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 harmful nature of people being afraid when they're in recovery and i don't look at it and want people to be left out of recovery but i don't want the queer population to be left out of recovery because we can't step forward so for me a lot of the places are very queer friendly. Oh yes, we accept people from the queer community. We will accept transgender. We will accept this. We will accept that. But when you delve down into safe, they still have on their intake, you know, um, who you're. If it's a if it's um, a male treatment center, as you, they have on their intake, who's your wife? Very, you know, they ask these questions, and right off the bat, it starts to re-engage um, a trauma system that is already engaged in another human being. They're afraid to answer because that question is like when they go to business. It's like, oh, are you married? Are you this? Are you that? And those types of things to be safe for people to look at trauma as a whole and how it just comes in medically. Does it come in through religious trauma? All developmental trauma, that they are actually addressing those even on their intake. Um, So when you're doing an intake with somebody on one of the treatment facilities, listen to the questions. You know, the questions are critical as to, you know, how do you identify without assumption? Because somebody who is non-binary with the phenotype of male, you know, um, identifies as non-binary, but if there's no space for them to select, Are they going to feel, you know, are they going to feel safe in that environment? Or are they automatically coming in on guard? So that's part of the differences, right? And it's also in the addictive community, it is very big on having a space where you can talk about a chemsex addiction, um, where somebody isn't going to look at you in a different, in a different way going, well, you're talking about taking chemicals and then having 
sex and that's all it is and that's the addiction when a lot of the treatment facilities uh, will say we don't do that here but you once you're done this and we take care of the alcohol then you can go deal with that so the person leaves a treatment facility that is queer friendly to go and deal with something where they needed queer safe that's where i kind of look at the differences yeah and one of the questions i was going to ask you is advice that you have when looking for a treatment center, so I love that one about paying attention to the questions that they're asking right from the start in your intake. Well, what other suggestions would you have if you're if you're looking for a treatment facility? I think no matter um, if you're coming from a, a heterosexual, heteronormative, or a queer aspect, some of the the questions that I would look for is, um, what's their family connection services like now? We know that within addicts, and at least I know personally, that sometimes addicts do a lot of damage to their family. Now, they seem, and sometimes those strain, those relationships are extremely strained. Do they offer services to allow them to reconnect? Now, if they're queer, some families are not safe. So where this comes into where it's being um queer friendly versus queer safe. Queer safe would be you get to pick your family. Who's somebody who's important to you who can show up if there's a family connection service? Like some of the treatment facilities offer like once a month, they'll bring families in and have people and be a part of therapy and be a part of the different parts of recovery. So if somebody is queer and their family is not safe, do they get to designate a member to be their family? Right? Does family on their intake mean blood or does it mean chosen? So family would be a critical part of what people should look at, no matter where they fall on the uh, sexual identity spectrum or the gender identity spectrum. Um, Financial, of course, what is the costs? Right now there's, um, you can pay, you can wait for a publicly funded in Alberta or, and that's publicly funded. So you're not paying anything out of pocket or you can pay in somewhere it's upwards of twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month, and you can go get treatment. So, financial is a big portion of it. Um, another one is what addictions don't they deal with? Um, many in my personal uh, journey, I've dealt with more than just one. My primary addiction is a process addiction, which was gambling. Um, but I smoked for many, many years, which is an addiction. Um, I have an unhealthy relationship with food at different times. Like, do they only focus in on drugs or alcohol, or do they actually bring a holistic view of addiction to the table? Yeah, and, and the mental health component, because so many are is is dual diagnosed and you know, not for shameless self-promotion, but we work with gender dysphoria and we incorporate any kind of uh, borderline because I know, especially as a woman, a lot of women are co-occurrent with borderline and, and yeah, yeah. Is it a holistic whole approach? It is a holistic whole approach. And, and that includes my other one was what kind of therapies do they offer, right? Really? What is their therapeutic practices? Do they offer, um, this is the one and it's, you know, it's only going to be CBT and that's all we do. Or is it CBT, DBT, art, uh, accelerated response therapy? Can the person who's coming in pick their therapist or is it assigned, right? Right. That's critical is to have that connection between the client and the therapist. 
You know, do they get to say, I want this person? And even though it might not have been assigned, that that person gets to be their therapist. Um, another one is what living skills do they offer as part of their recovery? Uh, how many addicts come in and they have no idea on basic living skills? That includes from how to clean all the way through how to iron, sew, or do a resume. You know, after your 30, 60, or 90 days, do they just send you on your way and you find yourself with no skills to cope in the real life? So that's a, another aspect of of recovery that needs to be looked at. What is their entire view? Not just, are they going to help me stop my addiction? Because addiction, like any other mental health concern, is just a symptom. Because I want to ask you a little bit more about chemsex and party and play and how that plays into a, a addiction treatment. Not being an expert in this area, um, chemsex or party and play is uh, a derivative of addiction where people are using chemicals to enhance sexual experience with uh, one or a group. And um, usually primarily it's with the methamphetamines. So we all know that meth is, um, you don't get to be a casual meth user. Yeah. There is no such thing. So um, the, the problem though is that your brain links sex with chemicals and chemicals with sex. So having to face that, um, when you leave is also a completely different recovery um, program for somebody. It's a different type of therapy and there's not a lot of places that actually can say that they will support chemsex um, treatment, even to the point of where somebody has brought it up in the past at a treatment facility that I know of. And we're told by their counselor that we don't deal with that here. So just put that one away. And we're only going to deal with the alcohol or the drug. And then you can deal with that one once you leave and find somebody else. But that's like leaving a whole place unattended to the person. And unfortunately, that person, when they left, relapsed. And of course, they relapsed because they didn't have what their primary addiction was, which was truly sex addiction, being looked after. Because they weren't. That's why I said one of the key factors when asking about treatment facilities is what addictions do they deal with? Um, what addictions do they support? And some of them will say, oh, we support them all. Then I would ask really clarifying questions. What does all mean to you? And seeing if they actually come across your addiction or where you feel your addiction is. But chemsex and party and play is um, really relevant within the, you know, the gay, bi, trans community. And it's one that needs to be addressed in therapy as well as in recovery without shame. So somebody who's going through it needs to be able to be in a therapeutic session, even group therapy, and be able to talk about that without somebody reacting to it. Yeah. Because that's where safety comes into play. Well, I know another question that I wanted to ask you, and this is probably uh, because of my own situation with that person that I've got that's gone in now, very dear and near to me. Uh, and um, what advice would you give him if he's he's facing any kind of of um, you know bigotry and you know like oh I don't want to room with him because he's whatever and if they, just those things like that. 
the only thing I can, it depends on the facility, but I would say, first of all, hopefully they picked a facility that was safe, like it is, or friendly enough that they have policies based around what that looks like. And they need to report it, right? I mean, the person who is acting out and acting upon your friend, if that was the case, using that as our, as our story, um, they're wounded as well. But wounds don't, they don't give a free pass to people being racist, homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic. It's not like, oh, I have a mental health concern, so I'm allowed to be a racist. I'm not. Right? That doesn't give me a free pass. So hopefully they would report it to very similar, bring it into the, the operations manager or whoever, they their, their counselor, their therapist. And hopefully if the facility is set up correctly, in my opinion, this is my opinion now, that they have an active say in how it is handled. It isn't just handled in a bubble, that the, the clients that are impacted have an active say in what this looks like. Um, and then stay with it because for so long, no matter what uh, people, no matter what gender or sexual or race or color, things have been handled without them being involved. And I love the saying in recovery is nothing about me without me. So if I bring something forward and if, if this person brings something forward, that they would keep them entirely a part of the process, including if sometimes somebody has to leave, you know, that's also very traumatic. If I was the person and I made a complaint and then the person was, and outwardly we'll use uh homophobic in this case and wasn't willing to come off of it and believed old school thinking or had really beliefs that were harmful. So they were asked to leave. I'm also going to have guilt about that, even though I'm going to be like, it's the right thing. I may have guilt about it. So, cause I've taken somebody else's life and put it in danger because now they're going back out to their addiction. So there's got to be a therapeutic aspect to that as well. And understanding that even though I brought it forward and I complained that I might need support on the decision that comes to that, that they come to if somebody's asked to leave treatment based off of a belief structure. Yeah. And that's a big part of the, of the recovery model anyway, is, is taking that person who's being homophobic and having compassion and understanding and in, you know, doing your own work on yourself around it, but, but boundaries, <laughs> having your boundaries at the same time that that's not okay. No, and it's not okay, but it's also, you are, it's like, this has been taught to them at some point in time in their life, right? This has been an area that they've been told this is how they should respond or react to or be fearful of. Um, and maybe with some education, they'll come back. They'll come back around. So coming in with from a lens of compassion from everybody is ideal. Um, but sometimes people confuse compassion with weakness and they, they aren't willing to come off of their belief structure. And then unfortunately they're making the choice for themselves. If they're not willing to learn, they might be making a choice that keeps them in their addictive states longer. 
And that's where that unfortunately falls. So any last minute advice that you would give to somebody who is genderly diverse, that's looking for treatment, struggling with addiction, and maybe has some trepidation about going into a treatment facility just because of what they might, they think they might, what they might face. I do have some, I do have some advice on that one. It would be is don't allow one negative experience to stop you seeking your recovery. Not all treatment centers are created equal. Um, there are some out there and there are some great ones out there that will uh, be completely open to you coming. So if you call into the first one or you fill out an online form and it doesn't go the way you wanted it to, or you don't feel safe, go to the next one. Um, my life in recovery has been a thousand times better than my life would be in addiction. So it's allowed me to experience life in a whole new manner that I never thought possible. So my advice is don't give up because somebody else screwed up. A lot of times we will, especially addicts, we will, it's like, you do something wrong. So I go and hurt myself. Something happens. Somebody yells at me. Somebody treats me poorly. When I was in my addiction, I'd have a a negative reaction at home. And the first thing I'd want to go is go disassociate into my addiction um, behind a slot machine or at a dealer table or the horse track or whatever. I wasn't hurting them. I was just destroying myself even more. So if you have a negative experience while seeking treatment, one, just go on to the next one. Don't give up. Keep looking until you find the one that's going to work for you. Because there are just as many ways to heal. The only way not to heal is by giving up and staying stuck. Very true. Well, tell us really quickly about Stonewall Recovery and the work that you're doing. Stonewall Recovery will be Canada's first 2S LGBTQ plus uh, treatment facility. Um, and I don't know whether this is seen in, in uh, other countries, but we put I put 2S in front of LGBTQ plus because we are on unceded land in many parts of Canada that uh, our Indigenous uh, brothers and sisters had beforehand. And so two-spirited is at the beginning is to honour um, within truth and reconciliation in that space. So Stonewall is about setting a new path, giving people who are 2S, LGBTQ+, a, a safe place to go to. Our first phase will be 18 to 24-year-olds, um, primarily because 18 to 24-year-olds scientifically have a different way of learning and a different brain. Their brains aren't fully developed yet. So meeting them where they're at will require specific, very specialized training, coaching, and treatment. So we are designing it so it's not a one-size-fits-all. And after that phase is wildly successful, we will launch into uh, 24 and or 25 and up. Uh, But yeah, so we're launching it here in Alberta and we are super excited of what's to come. Um, There's a lot of things that have, we feel, and from what our research is showing, we're doing that has never been done before Mm -hmm. um, that we're really excited to bring to the table. And we feel that is going to be a massive, massive uh, change into addiction recovery for the queer community. The other side that's going to bring is research. There is not a lot of research 
in the queer community that breaks it down beyond LGBT. They, they, it's all lumped together. We will be able to identify and start to slice that pie a lot thinner so that we will have research and numbers and statistics and provable casework based off of if they are lesbian or if they're gay or if they're bisexual, pansexual, or you know if they are, are trans or non-binary. This helps this will help everybody. Well, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. Huge Thank fan you. of what you're doing. All right. Well, I'm going to link all of your information in the description on YouTube, the show notes on the podcast, including a link to donate if anyone wants to uh, back your fantastic initiative. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate this. I know that we, um, we've been trying to do a lot more. We have another video coming up about uh, transgender mental health care. We've got, uh, we've been doing a lot of blog posts on, you know, how to promote inclusion in, in our everyday lives. And it's just, it's a topic that's very, very important to us. Thank you very kindly for having me, Joanne. I truly appreciate the opportunity to talk about the Stonewall and recovery and recovery within the queer community anytime.